0: This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television
1: presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars.
0: working in the theater.
1: This seminar, producing.
2: Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located in the heart of Times Square, the heart of the theatre, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all come together to bring their magic to you. These seminars are an outgrowth of the WINGS programs, which is an all-year-round program which was started a long time ago, from the legendary stage door canteen with its hospital shows going into hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers, which we continue to do today, to our Saturday Theater for Children program, which is an exciting and wonderful program. This brings not only the magic of theater to the children in their own schools, but it also brings it to their parents as well as they help prepare the children for that Saturday morning performance. The Wing is known for its Tony Awards, which is a very important award in the theater industry, a very prestigious award. It was given to reward the excellence in theater. The seminars that we are doing continue to work on that premise, that quality in the theater, preparation for the theater is most important. And so we bring the best of theater from the performance, who share their knowledge with each other and with you to the today's performance, the today's seminar, which is the very, very important part of the whole of theater. The word, the playwright and the director and their roles in working with each other, working alone or working as a team and how they then work in the whole of the production, which comes to you on the stage that you see. I'm going to turn over our seminar right now to co-moderators, Jean Dalrymple, who is an author, a director, a producer, and also a loyal member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing. Brendan Gill was all of those things, as well as a worker for the New Yorker, and for keeping buildings beautiful. Also a member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing. And they, in turn, will turn over to each other, will turn over this (laughs) panel and introduce them to you. Thank you very much, Brendan and Jean.
3: I feel this morning as if I were the elderly dean of... of, uh of a distinguished university somewhere presiding over a a group of the most gifted undergraduates (laughs) imaginable. Sometimes I boast that I knew a member of the class of 68 at Yale, and I don't mean 1968, I mean (laughs) 1868. (coughs) And it was true, Bishop Brewster of Connecticut graduated uh, from Yale in 1868, and I used to see him tottering around when I was an undergraduate. He was reputed to have murdered a man as an undergraduate, although that was not how he became bishop. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it appears to have been a step in the right direction. Uh, The- uh, among our promising and gifted uh, undergraduates today, beginning here on the right, Lynn Ahrens, who wrote the book and lyrics of Once on this Island, Playwrights Horizons. Stephen Flaherty, who was the composer of Once on this Island, and Graciela Danielle, the director choreographer of Once on this Island. Jean?
4: Way over there on my left is uh, tall, good-looking Luke <laughs> Yankee. <laughs> He's the director of the Cherry Orchard, which is now in rehearsal for the York Theatre. The York Theatre is a way uptown and a wonderful off-Broadway theatre that has done marvelous work. Next to him is George C. Wolfe. He's a director and an adapter. He uh, has adopted Spunk for the New York Shakespeare Festival. Works with Joe Papp. <laughs> then we have Don Sc- Scardino, who's the director of a wonderful play, A Few Good Men. And next to him is the man who wrote it. <laughs> Alan Sorkin. And uh, what more can I say? He has a few good men on Broadway. <laughs> great, great show. <laughs> Do you want to start the
3: position? Uh, well, well, one of the things that always interested me, especially when music is involved, is how people get together to, to, to pool the resources that are necessary, which are so diverse in their nature. So, of the three of you, one of you tell how this all began. As coming together for the three of <laughs> you.
5: you are the one who started it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I found a, a small novel um, in, a bo- in a used bookstore, that um, we had been looking for another idea. We had done a musical farce at Playwrights Horizons called Lucky Stiff in 1988, and um, we were kind of exhausted from writing a farce. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do, and, and we wanted something that was a little more emotional and a little more um, dramatic and and simple in terms of plot and structure and i found a novel in a store and showed it to stephen and said i think this could be something we could do and he liked it and we began to work on it and worked on it for about six months and um you know wrote songs for it and structured it and and felt that we had something and began to think who might be the right person to direct it and we Automatically thought of Graziella because we had conceived it as a dance um, a dance piece, and uh, you know with uh, totally sung through kind of thing and um, that 's that's how that 's the impetus for it. Um, uh, then we had to wait what seemed like ages for graziella 's schedule to be free, and we just waited and waited and waited and, and it worked out um,
6: and uh, I think another thing is after we had done Lucky Stiff, it was a very clever um, and highly structured show, and this show is much looser and musically, certainly, and uh, has a lot more uh, emotional weight, and for me as a composer, that was a relief after being clever for two years. So I was happy to, <laughs> to uh, do something a little more lyrical, and, um, and also um, through Composed, which was a new direction for myself
4: you had to go after the rights didn't you to we that had to old go novel. after the rights. Did you do that or yes. did play rights N- no we did that you did ourselves that. yeah and um actually <laughs> Tell us that about that because that's always a very interesting thing
5: well we had we had gotten the rights for lucky stiff so i had a little experience in doing it already and basically we we called the publisher of the book and said how do we get in touch with the author or with the author's agent and you know they, they put you in touch and and then it's basically a matter of you know, making an offer and, and seeing if they are, in fact, willing to have their work adapted. Who is the um, author? The author of the underlying novel is a woman named Rosa Gee, who is a Trinidadian author. And she's a wonderful lady, and we, were, we met her and had had a sort of a terrifying experience with her, because we had um, we had written most of the show and knew that we really wanted to do the show. We knew we had something, we knew we loved it a lot. And during the course of writing it, we had gotten in touch with her agent, and negotiations had begun, um, you know, to, to get the rights. And she was willing to have her, her book adapted. But by the time um, we got together, we had finished writing the show. And we had to present <laughs> four songs and an outline to her, and we, uh, I've never had such a, a, a nervous time in my life, <laughs> because, you know, if she hadn't liked it, we, you know, we would have had close to a year's work of worth down the drain. But um, she was wonderful, and, and was very excited, and, and has sort of been the mother of the project in a way. It's, I think, the first thing she's ever had adapted, and um, she's been very helpful. How many years <laughs> have you been working on it, until you got to her for the approval? Uh, when we got to her for the approval, I would say about eight months. Eight and months. Eight months or so. Yeah, we and we had a first draft pretty much done then, but it was eight months, so you know, we just couldn't see throwing the work <coughs> away at that point, and so it was terrifying.
6: Uh, also, the, pre- uh, the presentation for Rose Gee consisted of an outline in four four songs. And I had uh, the extra anxiety of, uh, here is a woman who was born in Trinidad, who had written this beautiful fable about the islands, a mythical island. And I was born in Pittsburgh, and I was writing the music of the <laughs> islands for this woman who was from the islands, and uh, that um, that uh, was something else to deal with. And uh, she responded very much, I think, to the emotional content, and after she gave us the nod of approval. I. I thought, you know, okay, that's a – you know, it gave me the confidence to go on and continue writing for these island people. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, Fritz Lowe had never been in Scotland when he wrote Brigadoon. <laughs> <laughs> I kept telling him, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <yeah>. I kept <laughs>
7: saying, remember this. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Lynn and Stephen came to me about a year ago, right? Yeah. Yes, with this show. And I had seen Lucky Steve at Playwrights Horizons, and I, I felt that there was just such promising, talented people that I wanted to work with them. Uh, fortunately, we have the same agent, so that helps yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the, I was in the middle of uh, rehearsing something for the second stage, directing a play, a musical there. And I remember going to the loft, and in uh, Liz's loft, right. and we sat there. I did have very little time. And they said, well, we'll read a little outline to you and sing four songs. I guess they were the same ones that they got the rights with, <laughs> Rose. <laughs> and. Uh, if you notice, they have been talking about emotional, and I guess that that's what got me. When they started reading the outline and Lean with her little tiny voice singing this magical uh, uh, songs, I started getting very moved. And uh, towards the fourth one, she says, "Well, that's all we have to for you." And I said, "She uh, says we have wrote written others, but." You don't have time. I said, let me make a call. I want to hear a little more. And I stayed there for about an hour, and at the very end, I was crying. And I thought, this is wrong, because as a director, you must be very clinical. But on the Mm. other hand, if I was moved, that meant to me that I wanted to do it. Mm. It was the kind of peace that touched my heart. And uh, and a wonderful collaboration started since then. Two boxes of clean air. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm Latin, so I'm very emotional.
3: (laughs) (laughs) People are beginning to choke up
0: already.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Wolf, tell us what you adapted Spunk from.
0: Well, there are three short stories uh, by Zora Neale Hurston, um, who is... uh, experience a little bit of a renaissance these days, because it seems like everybody has decided to do her the same year, which had me paranoid a little bit. <laughs> uh, but her, the breadth of her talent and her personality just as a literary figure is such that she could absorb all sorts of people. Um, th- the way it sort of started is, Gordon Davidson from the uh, Mark Taper Forum uh, called me up about, I guess it was about a year, a year ago or so, um, and they have this thing called a Literary Cabaret. Which I really call it a designer reading that, that they do, um, we're at this restaurant where everybody comes on Sundays and they read the, the works of, of writers. So he called me to, to, to see if I wanted to do something. And I said, Well, there are these three stories by Zona Hurston that I've always wanted to do, but I thought I'd do them at one point. And I, at one point, I wanted to make them full, a full musical. And um, so I said, Well, this would afford me the time to get to know the material, because her sensibility, which is, which is rural and there's a real elegance to these stories and a simplicity to them, whereas my work as a writer tends to be a, l- a little bit harder and urban and sort of smart ass. So um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, so I was sort of so I wanted to so I didn't want to do my version of it. I wanted to figure out a way that I could do get to know her before I then moved it to the realm of where I lived. Um, so I so I went out there and I worked with actors for about three days, and we literally did this five actors sitting on stools with, with a guitarist named Chick Streetman, who's currently with the show, playing accompaniment, and the audience sort of like went, g- got incredibly excited. They brought in reviewers, which was horrifying to me, but then we got these sort of like, because it was like, they're doing a reading. But it got all these wonderful reviews, and I, and the taper wanted to move it as sort of like this formalized reading presentation, but I said, no, I want to explore it a little bit more. Then I became involved with Crossroads, who I hadn't been involved with the Color Museum. Um, and I d- first I did a two-week workshop just physicalizing it, and then uh, we went into full rehearsal at Crossroads. Uh, and the, ch- the challenge for me became so much of what uh, Zonia Hurston writes. She writes this incredible, smart, funny, you know, e- eccentric in a certain way dialogue, but then within the narrative uh, are these incredible truths about men and women and relationships and people. So I wanted to figure out some way to theatricalize the narrative. So what then evolved from that was uh, incorporating a, um, a chick further doing more blues, and scoring it, and having some of the, uh, the text sung as if it were the blues. So yeah. it's sort of, and, just, and then coming up with a staging that would complement that. So I sort of used like the images of Japanese woodcuts and the blues to help visualize how this piece would be performed. How Hi. old are the stories? Are the stories th- um, uh, the uh, story in Harlem slang was written in 1942. Uh, the Gilded of Bits was written in 1933, and Sweat. Um, I'm not quite sure when it was written because it was only really published in the 1970s in an anthology of zona Hurston Hurston's work, which is when her work started to be rediscovered.
3: And are they related as as being written by the same person, or do they actually do they, have? They, a yeah,
0: they, they, are, they are by the same person. Well, also, I think what they're connect what w- the, the connective tissue that I feel that the stories are about. Well, one, I think there's an incredible – as a writer, she has an incredible capacity to forgive people for being human, to forgive them their frailties, which I think is just extraordinary, and it's wonderful to be a part of w- – in the theatre, because it's re- reassuring.
8: So, <laughs> uh,
4: Hurston was my first client as a manager.
0: Are you – really? Yes.
4: I put on the very sort of thing you're talking about, in
0: 1931. Oh my goodness, I owe you royalties, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but I also think that they are, they are really, they're, they are, uh, joined by the theme of, that all the things, that all the pain, some, the painful things, there's a cause with a song that I, uh, in the show, calls um, which, which is in the prologue, which talks about that sort of the pain and the hurt and the love that you go through is that, that's how you survive. That the thing that you think is keeping you from surviving is the thing that enables you to survive. So that these, so that the hardship that these people go through, in the first story, it's it's a story about a woman who is, who is in an abusive relationship and is terrorized by this rattlesnake. And, and the piece is really about how she rediscovers her lost strength. And in many respects, were she not backed into the corner as severely as she is, she would not discover that strength. And the, and the last piece in particular is about this idyllic love that is, in many respects, is too pure to survive. So it has to go through a period of contamination by outside forces in order to develop strength in order to survive. So they're but just very magically insightful stories. But those no. have
3: to be dramatized. That's a really tough yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. So
0: what, what we did was we dramatized the short stories as opposed to – so it's, I would consider it more of a, of a theatre ple- piece or mm. an evening of three theatre pieces as opposed to a play. Mm. Was the
4: rattlesnake a snake or a man?
0: Well, <laughs> well, there's this uh, her uh, well, the, there's a sort of blending of that uh, with because the, li- the lead character Sykes and uh, and Sykes and sex and snake and all sorts of sort of subliminal phallic things are operating in the story. Because there's one line at one point where she, the, the bluespeak woman who is like the narrator, she says at one point something long, round, limp, and black fell upon her shoulders. We go, okay, Zora, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> We get it. Yeah. <laughs> <You know. laughs>
3: so, so that's a very difficult thing. To, now, was, we, yeah. we, we keep going from the fact that things begin in one form into another. So your uh, play began as, as a possible movie, or is that not so?
9: No, no, that, it, it isn't. I began writing it—I uh, heard this story about uh, three years ago now, uh, that, in a, an extraordinary, intriguing story about, uh, uh something that happened at the U.S. Naval Base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Uh, And everyone got involved, from the Judge Advocate General's Corps to people on the National Security Council. And I heard this story, and I thought that I had to write this. And because the story involved so many characters, and because it was going to take place in so many places – Washington and Cuba, and in a courtroom, and in an apartment, and in a jail cell and all that – I thought that, well, this is going to have to be a movie. Clearly this is going to have to be a movie. Uh, And I think worked on it for maybe two weeks. Uh, as a movie, when I was just – I'd never written a movie before, I'd never written a screenplay, so I was running into all the – I I was just getting tied up in knots writing the screenplay, and I just thought, as an exercise, just as an exercise, so I can finish the story, so I can just get the story down, I'll write this as a play. I'm only going to take two weeks out to, to do this, just as an exercise. Uh, and six weeks later, i finished the first draft of the play and called my agent and I said, look, it's not a movie, it's a play. Um, <laughs> and he says, you know, th- that, that's great, let me read it. And, and I gave it to him and he looked at the title page and he said, there, there are twenty-one characters in, in this play. I said, I know. Uh, and, and that might be trouble, but, but read it. Uh, and, and so it was, it was really only a uh, – Mm. A movie at the, at the very beginning, and it was a mistake. But <laughs>
3: Raleigh Sean wrote his first play and not understanding anything about the cost of cast. Oh, his first play had over a 100 characters <laughs> in it. <laughs> uh, and it then turned out, as you probably have read or, or may have been part of it. Uh, they put the play on just for fun a few years ago downtown, and there were a hundred characters right. on stage. Right. All right. his yeah. friends, members of his family, <laughs> everything else. but to move a hundred people on stage, God! For well, it was I think a everyone way. along
9: the way, every producer who came on board, Don, every designer, everyone who came in contact with the script. I think the first thing they said was, "There are twenty-one characters <laughs> yeah. in this play." Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> that was quite a job of uh, moving around twenty-two yeah, people.
9: It was, it was a lot of choreography, right.
8: but. Um, Refreshing to have an uh, American company of 21 actors. Yes. Of course, now we have another one. Stetman <laughs> is, is in town. But uh, that was what was actually refreshing about it. And it's to our producer's credit that nobody actually said, well, we can't do it because of 21 Actors, we m- must find a way to do it. Yeah.
3: In fact, you know? I don't want to be insulting to anybody else. But how, how many characters in, in yours? <laughs> in yours, because uh, uh, it is true. I think for audiences that there's a great sense of joy in seeing a lot of people on stage. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. more and more, the economics of theater has been, can we find one or two small? Yes, things one, four <laughs> people. And then yeah, we had right. yesterday Bobby Morris with True. You know, one of <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, how many are in? in yeah, Eleven. Uh, that's uh, very uh, robust. Very uh, good. And uh, the robust. cherry orchard? How many?
4: Fourteen. Has in the 14. See, like that's too
3: <laughs> so, so these are all uh, giving what the audience really wants to have, which is a multiplicity of people to be related to. I right? think that's fine.
4: Yes, I do too.
3: And you're probably up to some mischief now, which is going to be in the reverse direction. And I'll be sorry. <laughs> <that you're laughs>
9: no, no. I want to use these 21 actors. Over. I'm only writing 21 <laughs> characters. <laughs> <plays now. laughs>
8: we did discover, however, much to our chagrin, that we were on the road with a t- Twenty-one men play and one woman. I said, "Next time, can you write twenty-one women?" Yeah. yeah. Women? yeah I think in the middle of auditioning, now we look at each other.
9: What are we doing?
1: There? <laughs> <laughs> a big, big mistake.
4: Tell us about the cherry orchard. Uh,
1: well, it's—I'm uh, very excited to be working up at the York. It's—I think one of the wonderful things about working up there is that, um, uh, particularly since the success of Sweeney Todd, I'm sort of in the ideal position of having um, an off-Broadway company where. These people are working, certainly for minimum, as they are at the public and other places, but uh, because of the reputation of the York, and also because of the reputation of of (laughs) Chekhov, uh, people rather came out of the woodwork. I mean, uh, some really wonderful actors, when they heard The Cherry Orchard, I mean, I'm really just uh, thrilled with the cast I've been able to put together. And I've been putting this one together for about a year and a half. And there were several delays uh, up at the York because of other commitments that my producer, Janet Hayes-Walker, had. And we had one cast that we were ready to go with back in September, and then George Abbott uh, wanted to premiere his new musical, Frankie, up at the York. And Janet went to me and said, Luke, I know we're ready to go, but uh, is there any chance, you know, we could push it back until the spring, and I said, who am I not to defer to George Abbott? <laughs> <laughs> <Very nice. laughs> the man yes. wants to see this done, and he wants to have it done right away. So, um, but the wonderful thing about pushing it back, uh, it really ended up being a blessing in many ways, because it gave me an opportunity to uh, examine more translations, and to examine more critical material. I mean, with Chekhov, there is such a dearth of material on the play. I, I reached a point where I said, well, I could research this piece from now until doomsday, and never have a definitive version of The Cherry Orchard. So I finally had to come up with what I felt would be my definitive interpretation of it, and uh, really just best represent the play to uh, you know, for my needs. And also, I'm aware that with a classic like this, I think it's something I'll want to attack again and again in my career. I mean, I'm sure that the Cherry Orchard I'm doing now would be different from the Cherry Orchard I would do at, you know, forty-five. I mean, God willing, I'll get another chance to, uh, to do it. And um, it's. Uh, I'm really stressing in this production. Far be it from me to reduce Chekhov to pop psychology, but what I'm calling the Peter Pan syndrome, the fact that these people have never grown up, and that there is just a wonderful kind of childlike innocence about these people. And I feel that when one is approaching a classic like this, which the audience, most of my audience will have seen uh, several times, and of course one always runs the risk of being compared to the Sorbonne production, or the Peter Brook production, or um, because (laughs) they seem to be turning up, you know, with with great regularity. So one has to kind of put that out of one's mind and just go on and say, okay, this is my cherry orchard, and this is the way I'm doing it, and uh, do it the best as I possibly can and be content with that.
4: You haven't changed the text, any have you?
1: No, no <laughs> 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 what a great not suspicion. at all.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, although, of course, the in the one? translation, you're very likely to. Right. <laughs> I just wonder
2: why do you want to do the Terioght again instead of a new play? Why do you want to do a classic? What's the reason for uh, doing a classic that's been done so many times? Y-
1: it's uh, it's interesting. The uh, Penny Fuller, who is my leading lady, uh, asked me that when we first met and started discussing it. And I felt very much the way, uh, when some people will say to an actor, why do you want to act? And they'll say, I have to. There's nothing else I can do with my life. That's rather the way I feel about The Cherry Orchard at the moment. It's, I've always had such incredible passion for it. And to be given an opportunity to do one of the greatest plays in the world, uh, really at the start of my career, and the timing was just so perfect because they had wanted to do some Chekhov up at the York for a while, and so when I approached Janet Hayes Walker, and she said, well, that's, we'd be very interested in that. It's, um, uh, it I just have such a passion for it and the energy. When, when I start discussing it, it's <laughs> I want to <laughs> jump out of the chair, you know? It's uh, uh, not unlike what Miss Danielle was saying about, uh, about Once on this Island. Just, you, you get into a piece, and then it gets into your pores, mm-hmm. and you just um, you have to do it
2: good answer.
4: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Anybody else have a play like that in mind?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Prepare to jump out of a chair. I remember the, how, how, how little I liked that Serban production of it, and I was saying to Luke before, we, we came on stage here, that uh, Irani Worth, who was here yesterday, was obliged to go loping round and round the stage at the end. And, and she did it perfectly wonderfully well. Nobody else but Irani I think could have loped in (laughs) true lope like that. But the whole stage was covered in the last act there with with, uh, what appeared to be a gigantic bedsheet to represent, of course, desolation, snow, abandonment and everything else. And uh, in the audience, the night that I saw the play, there was a um, plainly uh, compulsive housewife, because one corner of the white (laughs) bedsheet was all wrinkled at the very end. And she jumped right up out of the audience, went down and corrected that hospital (laughs) 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 productions of that kind are subject to risks of that kind. I remember – I I shouldn't be telling too many of these extraneous tales, but when Ellis Rab was doing his hamlet, he was determined to do a hamlet unlike other people's hamlets, without changing the text too much. So the to be and not to be soliloquy, uh, he read out of a book with with his glasses on, uh, which did not advance Shakespeare by an (laughs) iota. He also introduced in that production a topless Ophelia, which had uh, uh, made a greater impression, but did not improve (laughs) the, uh, the text in any event. But the temptation, uh, so strong that you must have to be holding back all the time to yes. keep the, – there shouldn't be the Luke Yankee stamp exactly. on
1: the of Exactly, exactly. And one of, the, uh, one of the actors said to me, now, you're not going to set it in a spaceship or anything. <laughs> <are you?"> <laughs> <laughs> and because you, I find that so often, I mean, that is the temptation, to uh, to muck about with, uh, with a classic. Rather than – one of the rules that that I live by as a director, which I'm sure the playwrights among us today will uh, <laughs> will appreciate. The three T's: trust the text, and when one has a text as brilliant as this, I, uh, I I found that my most difficult task was finding the best translation, because there's so many translations that are rather th- there are a lot of British ones that I find tend to be fairly dry, mm-hmm. and um, I. Uh, I don't happen to feel the Brits are the best ones to really do Chekhov. While there have certainly been some fine British productions, uh, even of the cherry orchard, but there is something about the British sense of reserve. I mean, th- the passion in Chekhov, you know, it makes me think of a, a movement teacher I had when I was studying at Juilliard, who would beat her breast and say, from your guts! <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's very much the way I feel about Chekhov. It's. Uh, Uh, And I've got an incredibly passionate group of actors who are really – Penny Fuller, once again, came to me on the first day of rehearsal and and she said, now listen, Luke, as as Madame Ronyevskaya, it would be very easy for me to do simple, lyrical, ethereal, gentle, all of the things that that lady obviously is. She said, I would much rather wait and apply that layer at the last minute, but first go for the passion, you know, the just incredible sensuality of this woman, and I find most of the cast is working that way, and we have some very exciting rehearsals.
4: Don <laughs> Scardino, tell us about your passion for a few good men.
8: Um, well, one of the things I'm that sure you
4: had it. From I have the many beginning. passions
8: about a few good men. Actually, I mean, uh, it's a challenging piece because it's 21 yeah. actors and it's 65 scenes last count, Mm -hmm. I think 65 scenes. So certainly, um, it's a difficult task, but, um, one of the things that I like about it is that it's about a person at the center of the play who's completely uncommitted to anything. He he really, he really doesn't care. There's nothing that really engages him other than softball, at the moment, anyway. And he, um, he comes to being a very committed, concerned individual. He realizes there's something to take a stand for, something that... Uh, he needs to be responsible about and for, and I think um, there—it's uh, kind of a popular success. A Few Good Men, um, audiences really respond to it. Sure. They're very vocal. They talk back to it. <laughs>
6: um,
8: in Washington D.C., they—they stood up every performance, which surprised us. Um, so it's really touched a nerve. And I think, um, aside from that, it's a mystery play, and it drags you along, and you want to add up the clues. But I think there's also something sort of visceral about in an age where we can't afford to sit back and, and be passive mm. about things. We need to be concerned. We all need to be concerned socially and politically at this point, certainly. Um, so I think that's one of the things that engaged them. It's one of the things that engaged me about it.
3: That's um, interesting okay. about Washington, uh, because uh, plainly they know. I mean, there's a lot of… Yes, th- yeah. Washington well, must want a voice in respect mm-hmm. uh, to, to the utterance of truth in art that it rarely Barely here?
8: Absolutely. It's about un- uncovering corruption as well. Yeah. I
3: think they were. Uh, but they get a lot of journalism, but they don't get art. They don't how get anybody trying to tell How did the
2: come about? Did you. You said you both had the same agent, or how, how did the two well, of them at, at one point, we
9: did, did both have <laughs> the same agent. Um, but uh, uh, a bunch of years ago, about five years ago, the, uh, the first play that I wrote uh, had been optioned. It's never been produced, but it was optioned, and Don was uh, set to direct it, and that's how we met. Uh, And so, when the time came to uh, bring a director – actually, before the time came to bring a director in on this, uh, Don was reading it, and I was working with Don, and Don was the one who wanted to direct it.
8: It was a um, great process, and kind of a classic process, in that we we did several readings of the play in various venues, sometimes with an audience, sometimes without an audience. And we just kept working on the play over an eight- to ten-month period.
2: And Um, then selling it to a producer?s How did that come about?
8: um, Or producers, in this case.
9: (laughs) Right. That, that, that was, uh, (coughs) crazy. We kind of got in the back door. The play, because it was so large, um, uh, my agent at the time felt that one possible way to get a commercial production of the play was that the, the, the play he felt had a lot of film potential, a lot of movie potential. In fact, it has since been sold to the movies. Um, and he thought that, uh, if he went to a film studio and got them to purchase the film rights before the, the theatrical rights were sold, uh, and got them in exchange to for the uh, film rights to put money into the show, that that's one way that such a large uh, project could be mounted. And uh, he told me that this was going to be his plan, this was going to be his strategy, and I kind of shook my head and said, well, it sounds nice. Call me <laughs> when it happens. And he called a week later.
4: Um,
9: and uh, David Brown, who uh, who produced The Sting and The Verdict and Jaws and um, any number of light classics, uh, uh, bought the film rights, bought the theatre rights. Was, uh, is This year, for the first time, at, at seventy-three, David Brown has become a Broadway producer. He's producing True, as well as A Few Good Men and The Cemetery Club uh, in May. And David brought in uh, his good friend, Lewis Allen, who's you know, produced a hundred plays on Broadway, as well as Robert Whitehead and Roger Stevens and the Kennedy Center, and then the Schubert Organization came in with <laughs> Uh And, you know, soon, I think every producer on Broadway was uh, somehow involved in bringing A Few Good Men to New York.
3: Actually, David Brown is also an author this year. We he should is, give a yeah. plug for his, uh, yeah, for his yeah, new but book. is doing his own book tour right now. I'm not going to plug it. ADBT. But it's exceptionally complex, but all on the side of people who really wanted to be interested in this thing. They really all. The, the very producers of this ride. play,
9: I mean, truly, they are the heroes of, uh, of a few good manics. Yeah. As committed as committed can be uh, to bringing a play written by nobody. Uh, that was going to cost a million dollars um, and and cause a lot of headaches. They were uh, completely committed to bringing this play uh, to New York Mm -hmm. and making it a success. And also,
8: in terms of a a developmental process, they really went about it in a very sane uh, and sensible way, because we went to the um, uh, University of Virginia, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. And uh, um, we did it there for three weeks in a very supportive and relaxed environment, we were able to build the set Who there. Who directed and
2: all that. it to the University of Virginia? How did, uh, how did it get there? Yes. Well,
8: Lewis Allen is an alumnus of uh, yes? Uh, yeah. yes, yes, yes? Yes, yes, yes. Of UVA. Mm-hmm. And they had been looking for something to partner on. I know that the university wanted very much to have a professional production come down there and work there and kind of interact with their theater department. Um,
9: to, uh, b- somehow imitating what, uh, what Manny Eisenberg's doing at Duke right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that UVA is really interesting.
8: So we were able to do it there. It, it was a large play, and a, and, a, and a risky one, in terms of a commercial venture. So we were able to do it there and, and really see it. with uh, all twenty-one
2: then, characters? Yes,
8: uh-huh. And with the Broadway cast, really. Mm-hmm. They all came down for the ride. And then, four weeks at the Kennedy Center, and then we were really in some kind of shape for New York. We uh, Aaron rewrote this play extensively. I mean, we worked on it extensively from the beginning. In fact, right before we went to rehearsal, we spent two days just locked up, and completely reworking. I the think play. we
4: ought to get back to the right side
3: of the <laughs> seminar. Oh, geography, <laughs> you want <laughs> <accept> the
4: second,
3: geography. <laughs> All right. Actually, this sounded to me so interesting that the universities are beginning to take. If, 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 if Duke and, and you, the University of Virginia is going to be doing something like this, because the, the question of economics keeps arising over here. Over yeah. mm-hmm. That's wonderful that that could be afforded in that fashion. Now, wh- what about financing from your point of view? Well, on what is known as this side of the stage.
5: Yeah. Right, well, on this side of the stage. Um, <laughs> well, you know, uh, these guys can talk about it as well as I can, but um, we've, we've been very fortunate in that we, we have established a relationship with Playwrights Horizons, and um, it, it's, I don't know how equivalent it is to the real world of, you know, commercial theatre, because it's a very low pressure environment. Um, they are extremely supportive. They, they invest their money and their time in, in unknown or, or beginning writers, and, and this is our second show there, um, w- with very low pressure. I mean, they, it's a wonderful, um, you know, they get funding. This uh, Once on this Island has been um, funded by AT&T, um, so Money For It has come from there, and, and Playwrights, of course, is funded by other, by other sources. Um, You know, I mean, I I feel we're spoiled, because um, we've never had to, sort of, submit to any kind of commercial pressures at this point. I'd like
3: to have the experience (laughs) of doing that, but,
5: you know, right now, I mean, we're – You wouldn't
3: want to go to the University of Alaska necessarily. No, but we're we're
5: actually – our next show that we're going to be doing um, is being done at a a place called New Musicals, which is a kind of an experimental um, thing that's happening, um, and it's done in in conjunction with SUNY Purchase. um, And they'll be using the theatre facilities up there. Um, doing large-scale musicals, uh, but they've made deals with the, the various unions so that um, you know the, the what they'll be paying to produce the shows is much much less than would be paid on Broadway. Um, and their hope is, you know, to do a production there that does not open to the reviewers, and then hopefully give it some kind of an out-of-town tour or venue, and maybe bring it into Broadway if it, it seems appropriate. But you know, again, a, a lower pressure kind of a thing. And, and what I understand is that they've worked out a, a some kind of a, a thing with with SUNY Purchase, where the university will supply the theater um, facilities, and in return, new musicals will. Provide theater professionals who are going to be working there to lecture to the students, um, you know, and, and do a kind of a. So
3: again, everybody gains. It's yes, it exactly, sounds wonderful. Which
5: is a great, you know. Right. Yeah. Now, is
3: the budget for your projected new pli- uh, much bigger than the previous one? Is it? Yes, does it turn so out. It's keep quite.
5: Yes, yeah, it's quite. It's a, it's a, sort a, quite of a lot more. Yeah. And what about
3: the
6: size of and the and cast? see, it's, it's about twenty characters, and to tell you the truth, yeah. we actually uh, in once on this island we have eleven characters, and. Uh, That's considered a very, very large show for Playwrights Horizons. And uh, we had developed uh, this piece uh, through a workshop that we did in October and November. And the thing uh, that we were concerned with at the time is, it's a dance piece. And if you've ever been to Playwrights Horizons, they have this very, very small postage stamp stage. So not only uh, when you line eleven people up, not only do they hit one side of the <laughs> theatre and the other, but then when you think in your mind about them moving,
5: They take and little steps. <laughs> little steps. <laughs>
6: so I mean, that, a lot of that, uh, uh, we had to deal with during, <clears> during the workshop. And in fact, uh, the solution was, uh, we've painted the set on the wall of the theatre. <laughs> we didn't want to bring any scenic elements, really, into the theatre, so we that actually painted. That's, yeah, that's yeah. right.
7: Yeah. The workshop uh, actually um, helped enormously, mm. because when, when we first started uh, at Playwrights, one of my main concerns, because of the nature of the piece, which is not really uh, a book musical, it's almost what I would call like a folk opera ballet. It moves constantly, has a constant flow. Uh, I couldn't imagine doing this, uh, directing yes, but not choreographing it on this theatre. So we insisted on a workshop, and we insisted in doing it on that particular stage, which helped enormously for me, because then I had to deal with the realities. Like, for instance, there is no entrance or exit on stage, right? So how many times, how many wonderful things, clever things can you do <laughs> bringing people from stage left and exiting people to stage left. <laughs> well, you know, I had, it was one of the hardest choreographic things I ever had to go through, not because of the complexity of the piece, but the complexity of trying to be clever every time. And uh, however, when, it, when we finished the workshop, the interesting thing was that that it was created for the space. And now, if we are ever lucky to be moved to other place. I already have started thinking that. Well, I don't know. I don't know how to do it because it <laughs> does work this way yeah. now. You know? <laughs> but it was. I have to say that playwrights were so supportive about this because it was. It was an unusual thing for them to have a workshop of a musical, and they really went with us all the way. They're extraordinary people to work with, and um,
3: so. Composers often have to play their songs over and over and over in the course of raising money, but that isn't necessary if you Uh, work with Playwrights
6: Horizons. Well, it it, it was interesting. We had uh, had finished uh, Lucky Stiff there in um, May of 1988, and uh, we began work on Once in this Island in June of 1988. uh, And we thought, uh, well, this is so different. It's, It's, first of all, Playwrights Horizons does a lot of comedy. Uh, this was like nothing they had ever done, and I think Lynn and, uh, myself, we we thought from the beginning, well, this isn't a playwright show, and we didn't think of, you know, where would we put it. We just started working on this piece, and they became interested, or certainly encouraged us, and after about six months, uh, they were very interested in, uh, in doing the piece. And so we were were lucky in that we didn't have to do, uh, backers auditions, you know, if you will, you know. And uh, we, we presented the material to uh, Ira Weitzman, who's the music, musical theatre program director there, and to Andre Bishop, who's the artistic director. And, but we would only present to them maybe every uh, two months or so, so we sort of uh, did this on our own. And uh, we, we were fortunate in that we didn't have to we, – we did it for ourselves, we didn't have to change it. to. to suit some other form, and I think because of that process and that freedom, uh, it, it's, it's a very – it's structurally different than almost anything that I've seen.
3: Well, you'll never look back, you won't do it in any other way. No, yeah. No, yeah. No, no. <laughs> no.
5: What is your background? My background? Yes. Um, I have a checkered background. Um, <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> um, I was a creative director in advertising for about seven years. Um, I was a, a television writer and producer for quite a while, um, did a lot of um, songs for TV and scores for movies and that kind of thing. Um, then I got into commercial music, and uh, which I still continue to do. And um, during the course of all of that, I thought, perhaps I could write songs for the theatre, and it seems to be working out. So and how did you get to each other? How did we meet each other?
6: Yeah. Um, um, we were lucky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, I went to college at uh, University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, and I had a classical background. as a composer, uh, and I uh, wrote a lot of theatre there, but uh, sort of on my own time and in, you know, my hidden room, and I didn't show it very much to the composition department. And But all, all along I knew I wanted to be a writer for the theatre, and I moved to New York in 1982, and uh, entered the BMI workshop, um, and w- which is a workshop for songwriters and uh, for the theatre, developmental, uh, and you meet once a week. And uh, Wednesday at four was <laughs> our uh, two hour period, and I met Lynn there, uh, sat next to her on the first day, and uh, we d- didn't work uh, f- till about eight months later, and uh, we've been working together uh, ever since. You were brought we were. to New York by Le- Le-
3: Le- Lehman Engel? He, uh, he, he was a remarkable man who now dead, prematurely dead, uh, now in heaven, but who did so much for. for People like
6: you. Yeah, I, I, I met him. He had come to Cincinnati for a master class, he wanted to hear work of student composers. I met him in 1980, and I was doing a show of mine uh, at the time, which was uh, one of my few forays into lyric writing as well. I gave that up quickly. <laughs> but uh, he was impressed enough, he said, come to New York uh, after you graduate, and I did. And unfortunately, he died about three days before yeah. I left, yeah. or left for New York. Yeah.
2: Is there the, the uh, same availability for a playwright as, as a Lehman Engels workshop uh, for composers?
9: D- you mean we're a, a kind of workshop situation? mm mm-hmm. Yeah, there are. there are. I know there are writers' colonies and uh, Playwrights Horizons, in fact. We, I, I was part of a group last year and the year before, had a uh, – there were five of us that we were the playwrights' unit right. uh, at Playwrights Horizons, and there are lots of labs all over the place. What about uh, in Manhattan? Manhattan, there are a lot, and, um, a- and if you wanted to know what they are, there's a book called The Dramatist Sourcebook, which lists really literally every playwriting opportunity that exists, whether it's production or workshop, this kind of thing, or a lab or a grant, uh, or even agents. The Dramatist Sourcebook Book. BMI
5: offers one. BMI has a librettist workshop, um, which, you the know, yeah, yeah. yeah, the same kind of thing, yeah.
3: Were yeah. you ever up at the O'Neill, or? Not? No, I never been at the O'Neill. Yeah.
9: I'd like to be at the O'Neill.
3: Oh, there in summer, go somewhere else in winter. It's just uh, for right. For right. It's all for travel. Uh,
8: Sundance in the
4: winter. Yes, the yeah. Over here, know like the name existence. of the musical that Harold Prince is directing up there at SUNY.
5: Kiss of the Spider Woman. What, what is it? Kiss of the Spider Woman. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He's the um, first show in the season, and we're the third. we're the third show in the season. Mm-hmm. We're doing my favorite year. And there. who composed the music for that. For Kiss of the Spider Woman, John Kander. Candor
3: and Ab. It and Ebb. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it sounds very entertaining. Yeah. But uh, but you had a, r- a real challenge now in, in, in your in the latest thing that you're w- working at. Uh, what is the source? The necessary source of the of the music as compared to say
6: Trinidadian. Yeah. Uh, you know I mean? There are no Trinidadian people in this one. <laughs> uh, it's it's based on uh, the movie My Favorite Year. And, uh, it's a movie that I loved from the first time that I had seen, seen it, and Lynn and I had talked about doing it, but again, it's a large cast work, twenty in the cast, and uh, our last show at Playwrights was ten, this current show is eleven. And, um, it was a much larger production, and uh, the producer of new <coughs> musicals, Marty Bell, had seen Lucky Stiff and uh, brought us to his office and said, I'd like to do a musical with you. And uh, this, since this was an idea we had been kicking around for a long time, uh, we proposed it to him. And uh, he was um, good enough to get the rights in our behalf, so that's how I that came. I don't know
3: the movie at all. Oh. Uh, it's Peter about the O'Toole. Er, Peter
6: O'Toole, Mark Lynn Baker. It's about the early days of live television, uh-huh. and it's about people throwing together a show in six days. And uh, we're trying to approach our project with the same slightly longer schedule, but the same mm-hmm. amount of enthusiasm. <laughs> and, and
7: panic.
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's a wonderful idea. Thank and It's a lovely film. about agents. Can we just ask who your agents are, how you got to them?
1: Uh, I just started working with Gary Krasny at the Phoenix Agency, and basically I just uh, approached him and said, I am getting work, and I need representation, and I think you should represent me. <laughs> I was very <laughs> bold. <laughs> Not unlike did. the way I, I approached my producer about the cherry orchard. So this is what I want to <laughs> do, and I think you should produce it. Good I've been you. very fortunate that people have said yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, I'm with uh, uh, Wiley Houseman and Sam Cohen at ICM. And, um, Um, Actually, I was with another agent, and then uh, after um, Color Museum, uh, Wiley wrote me a letter. Mm -hmm. And I was looking, so I went in to have a series of meetings and stuff. How
2: the agent to a playwright, to a director?
0: Um, I think it depends on the nature of the relationship that that you have with the the agent. The thing which is, um, um, uh, I don't have a sort of like uh, a uh, a, read this, and what do you think? And what you, the r- relationship with with my agent? The uh, the um, I I sort I trust him because I feel as though there's a tremendous amount of integrity involved, mm-hmm. and I know that, and, and I have a whole series of of sort of rules that I have just in terms of, of projects that I will work on and situations I'll be involved with, and I feel as though that that Wiley is incredibly sensitive to that. So I um, so I in many respects I view him to serve as a buffer to deal with a whole series of other people that, because I've, I've gotten myself involved in a, um, as a result of Color Museum, a number of situations with wonderful people that were not wonderful experiences. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, so that since then I've, I've learned that it's one thing to be in love with the project, and to be lo- in love with your ego's ability to do the project, but there's another thing to deal with the people who you're going to be dealing with. and. You know, so… There's
2: that trust that you talked about.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: Would we go on? What about? Yeah,
8: I think you, um, agents, you probably have to find someone who, who thinks, or, or whose uh, taste or sensibility is like your own, so that they can really represent you in, in that sense. Uh, you know, some agents are really like flesh peddlers, we all know that, and some of them are actually uh, a very valuable support system, um, as well as a representative, you know. they can. See you through lean time. Support you when you're working on a project that has no backing or, or uh, no support. They can keep you encouraged and keep you going. Did you choose
2: your your agent? Uh,
8: yes, I did. Been? Uh, I I've in thirty years working, I've probably been with every agent in town. <coughs> 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 when like did you start? Poker. When you were six. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I started when I was twelve. Actually, oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be um, very odd. <laughs> But um, so now I'm, I'm uh, with a group called the Gersh Agency. They're uh, sort of a bi-coastal agency. They're small but smart, mm-hmm. uh, and like them a and lot, like them personally. So yeah. it works out.
9: Uh, I, I'm with uh, CAA, the Creative Artists Agency. Um, they uh, they came to me uh, in the middle of a few good men, and I I, I was looking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're kind of relentless. When they come to you, it's you're pretty much gotten. They won't let you uh until you go with them. Um, but I think that, uh, that as far as the Asian's importance, uh, to a playwright, I think it's pretty important. It, in this day and age, productions really need to be put together. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think it's as simple anymore, uh, as taking a script to a producer, uh, and the producer says, I like this, I'll option it, and I'll do it here in New York. You have to, e- e- even A Few Good Men, which was, um, uh, extraordinary in that that's almost what happened. You know, it was taken to a producer, they said, I want to do it, and do it. The, uh, the University of Virginia, the Kennedy Center, all that had to be put together Came out somehow. Came the agent. And the agent helps. Yeah, the mm-hmm. agent really now is, uh, is almost a producer in as much as they, mm-hmm. they really put together uh, the whole package, because that's what's required now, it's just so hard to do a play. That's and also why
3: things take so much time nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people out in the outside world are always puzzled by the fact, that a successful piece of work, which looks as if it couldn't possibly have failed been other than it is, nevertheless has been years in process of getting put together. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the time span keeps increasing uh, with every year. It doesn't get less, certainly. That's it's easy. a very complicated mm-hmm. business, and the more gifted you are, the less likely you are to be fit to deal with those things which the agent is serving as a buffer for. Right. So, in a way, they have become increasingly indispensable over the years, mm-hmm. and look yeah. as if that would go on and on and on, yeah. Yeah. until you've been in the theatre for 40 Oof. years and 50 years and 60 years.
2: <laughs> Before we break for questions that you're going to have to do, could we just talk about agents on the right side of you? <laughs> <laughs>
7: well, this is real quickly, because we all have the same You, right? you all
2: have the same. And yeah. yeah. how did My you all My story to? was
7: a little bit of a, like a fairy tale, because about fi- 15 years ago, I was still dancing on Broadway. I was assisting Michael Bennett and working with Fosse. And out of the blue, uh, this person approached me, Howard Rosenston, who was in in a big agency. And uh, I had no uh, agent as a dancer. I was working with the top. I didn't need to to have an agent at that time. And he came to me and he said, "Uh, I think you're going to become a choreographer. Uh, Everybody says that you have the talent. I didn't know that I could. He says, I would like to represent you. He was just starting. He was leaving this big agency and going on his own. So I was too, And therefore, since then, we have been together, and we have never signed with each other. I asked him, I didn't want to marry anybody. I just wanted to have an affair. (laughs) And it's been 15 years of the most supportive affair uh, I can think of. (laughs)
5: Perfect. And yeah. you and you have the same agent. We have the same yes, agent. So. We we found him um, simply because we um, a fellow named Ira Weitzman at Playwrights Horizons had sort of discovered us at one of these workshops in town and liked our work very much and said, "Do you have <laughs> an agent?" And we said, "Well, we don't. We know, you know." And he said, "Well, let me, you know, set you up with a few people." And he arranged interviews with and several agents, and we just loved Howard. And, and
2: your affair is uh, successful, it seems <laughs> to be. So far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're to going think. to have to break for questions right now, and oh. we're just going to take a few minutes to stand up and stretch. And come right back to your seats, and I know that there must be a lot of questions that you want to ask of our panel. So think of them now and give them to any one of the wing volunteers that you see. Thank you very much.
0: This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York.
2: We are continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this seminar is on the playwright, the director, how they work together, how they work alone, and how they work with a dead playwright, and (laughs) which they prefer. (laughs) Brendan Gill and Jean Dalrymple are our co-moderators, and they'll pick up where we
3: left. Jeez. Isabel has uh, introduced that welcome taint of necrophilia, <laughs> which has uh, <laughs> almost helped to gathering, I think. Um, but it has also been suggested to me that perhaps more information about the background of you people on this side of, of the stage uh, would be welcome, not exactly from the, from the cradle, but almost. Now, we didn't hear from Luke that he had gone to Juilliard. Before that, you had had a, a conventional uh, uh, upbringing in our yes. great city or elsewhere.
1: Uh That's right. Up in uh, – I grew up up in Connecticut. And uh, I've grown up in the business, really, which is a a tremendous advantage. My mother is Eileen Heckert. And uh, so I was going to Broadway openings, really, from the time I was very young. And in recent years – actually, I'll fill it in the middle in a moment – (laughs) but in recent years, the past, with The Cherry Orchard being the third, the past three shows uh, that she has had and that I have directed, have opened within a week of one another. And so I've decided that's some pretty good family karma. (laughs) But uh, I started out after uh, studying at Juilliard. I pursued the regional theater bit as an actor for uh, for several years, and then. started directing, and I've been going back and forth between assistant directing on Broadway. I've assistant directed six plays on Broadway, and going off to the Regions and uh, doing my own things. And, but The Cherry Orchard will be the first piece I have actually directed on my own in New York. So mm. it, needless to say, I've got a lot riding on it.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so there is something in what you call the Regions that's somewhere beyond the Appalachian <laughs> range, who knows where.
0: And, and you, what? I'm who? from Kentucky. I'm from Frankfort, Kentucky. Uh, I ran away from cold weather to go to school in California, at the Claremont Colleges. Uh, and after that, I went to Los Angeles to try to do theatre, and I realized that was a foolish attempt. <laughs> but uh, So I was there for about three years, and then I moved to New York around 1979 or '80, and I um, uh, was t- actually teaching acting at City College and a few other places around town. R- uh, focusing more, I, I started out as a writer-director. Direct and more writer. Then when I came to New York, I decided to focus more on the writing. And uh, in the middle of that, I, was, um, I went to NYU and the dramatic writing program, and then switched over to the musical theatre program. Um, uh, and then, since then, since Color Museum, then I've tried to go back and rejoin the directing and with my writing, so. Don, how
8: about you? Uh, well. Um, Started when I was 12 years old. Uh, my parents were jazz musicians. They weren't that fond of uh. my going into the business, but I was so single-minded about it. I just did. Sort of saved my allowance, got pictures taken, went around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could still knock on doors, you know, right, and, and yeah. do the rounds, you know. Remember when you used to do the rounds? <laughs> so um, that was fun. I, I sort of. Um, I had ever said Buddy says, "Don't you miss your growing up?" But I had a great, great childhood, and um, <laughs> worked from the time I was 12. Here in New York. Here in New York City. Uh, I think when I was 13, I got on The Guiding Light, which was a soap opera. Mm By the time I was 14, I was working in plays.
4: (coughs) Which um, was your first play?
8: Actually, I got my equity card on um, a play called Critics' Choice, a touring company of Critics' Choice, with Hans Conry, Mm
3: -hmm.
8: which was fun. Um, And uh, and kept working, worked a lot. um, And in my middle 30s, or yeah, middle-thirties, I did um, a play called How I Got That Story, and the playwright asked me to direct a production of it, and I was so fond of him and impressed with him and, and flattered that I I did it, and, um, and found myself sort of wearing the, the right shoes for the first time. I, and I decided that the theatre didn't really need another thirty-five-year-old juvenile. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I found myself in a soap opera playing a twenty-four-year-old. and. I was nominated for an Emmy, and I, I was embarrassed. It was in the under it was in the under twenty four category. <laughs> I felt I had to accept it as a lifetime achievement award. <laughs> so I, I just decided that I'd had enough, and it was r- refreshing to go from being right. the, the juvenile to the daddy overnight. Sure. So what I, about the
3: temptation to be a writer? Are you have you been tempted? No, to
8: I, I, it's too solitary for me. I I'm a group person. I mean, I like working with groups of people. I like. Uh, I like the, the conglomerate that is the theatre, the aggregate mm-hmm. of people And you,
4: Aaron, are you like that, or are you, do you like the sound uh, Yeah, I, am, I invite it?
9: friends over when I'm uh, writing, <laughs> right just right to in. sit <laughs> there while I'm doing <laughs> No, actually, I, I enjoy uh, – uh, I, I don't enjoy being alone, but it's yeah, what you have to do um, yeah. when, uh, when you're writing. In fact, frequently, uh, because I'm finding it lately increasingly more difficult to write in New York City, there just seems to be uh, so much noise and activity, I find myself writing very late at night. Um, but, uh, y- you do that long enough, um, and you, you just do go crazy from the solitary confinement, and, uh, and you run to be with friends. But now, where did you begin? Uh, I grew up in, up in Westchester County in Scarsdale. I've heard of uh, that. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and went to, uh, Syracuse University and got a BFA in theatre there, and then moved to New York City when I graduated when I was, uh, that's right, uh, in 1983 when I graduated.
3: Mm-hmm. And then did you, did you ever have what would be called ordinary professional employment anywhere, or you were set up on doing what you were going to be doing? No,
9: not – I mean, I, I had uh, a, a host of survival jobs while I was, you know, tending yeah. bar and, and working at the TKTS booth. Um, uh,
2: uh, Name some of them, we need to know.
9: The bars and <laughs> <or> the booths? <laughs> <laughs> those, those were the two big ones. In fact, working at the, at the Half Price Tickets booth gave me my, my very first writing job. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, published a piece in Playbill Magazine. Uh, about the life of a, of a TKTS employee. (laughs) (laughs) in retrospect took some guts to submit a piece like that. Um, but but then I tended bar mostly in Broadway theaters. You know, Broadway theaters have, uh, uh, have bars, which is really, uh, if, if you're gonna be an actor or a director, if you wanna work in the theater and you need a, a survival job, um, it's, it's a great job. Uh, you, uh, the hours are right for going to meetings or going on auditions uh, or, or, or rehearsing a play, and um, you're also really working in the theater. Uh, kno- <laughs> <laughs> no, I know it, it sounds silly, but not no, only. I, uh, I mean, there's there's really a thrill uh, in just. I, I really very much felt a part of uh, of. You also get to see the theatre, you get to see the
2: show. There's also a
9: tremendous amount to be gained from watching uh, good plays, bad plays, good performances, mm-hmm. bad performances. I mean, seeing you know, Derek Jacoby a hundred times and Breaking the Code, uh, you, you know, you really do pick <coughs> up How do you
2: that. get the job?
9: Uh, there are two companies, AJR Concessions and Theatre Refreshments, and one of them has the Schubert Theatres, and the other one has the Niederlander Theatres. They're in the phone book, call them up and tell them you want to work.
8: <laughs> tell them our attention.
2: Probably yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <all>, <laughs> 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 the most important thing you would have learned from yeah. this seminar. <laughs> <laughs>
3: John of course, saved his, his weekly allowance, which is, a, that was a thousand dollars a week?
8: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I literally did. I literally saved my allowance, and at the time, I mean, you could get your headshots done for twenty-five dollars, you know. Mm. Um, and um, knocked on doors, then you could do that. You could knock on agents' doors and you'd be submitted. There was a lot of work in this town then. I, uh, you know, I, it, I'm loath to say this, but I wouldn't know exactly how to tell people where to begin at this point, because the doors were much more uh, open. Back then,
3: um. but what about any of the people who, who who wanted to begin on the on the West Coast? You said it was hopeless to, to try to do theater in L.A. For well, the I course.
0: mean, I it would do. I would. Uh, I was working at this place called the Inner City Cultural Center, and uh, it, uh, the shows that I would do, I got like good reviews in the L.A. Times, and the town said, "Well, so what?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, there was no. Th- th- the 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 main problem that I felt with LA was, even in New York as severe as it has gotten, you see off-off Broadway, you see off-Broadway, you see Broadway, so you see that there is some sort of peculiar hierarchy at work. It may not be the hierarchy that you want to be a part of, but you see it. There it was sort of like throwing pebbles into the ocean and, you know, and there was no reverberation that came back. So it was a wonderful time in terms of discovering, uh, my voice, but in terms of, of, of sharing my work with the world. It was a, it was a very frustrating experience, but mm-hmm. it was a wonderful discovery time.
3: You sound like as if you wanted to be a writer more than anything else. Oh right. yeah, well,
0: yeah, that's what it is, but after, uh, yeah, I think my, my personality, it's easy for me to direct, but my real passion, well, I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. I am a writer. That's In talking that's
2: about writing, you mentioned the amount of rewriting that you did on A Few Good Men. Yeah. How do you feel about that, and how do the writers here feel about having to do rewrite?
9: Uh, uh, generally good, actually. Um, I, I find myself more comfortable rewriting than writing in the first place, uh, as, as Don knows now. Because, uh, rewriting, most of the time, you know what the problem is, you're going in to fix something. Um, and, uh, writing, you're filling up blank pieces of paper. Writing, he, he, you don't know where the end of the tunnel is.
2: But you're not that much in love with it, that you, you, can, you can say, well, okay? Well, no.
9: It's, it, it's, it's not that it's not hard. I mean, we were out of town, and there, there were two different kinds of rewrites done. One was done to make the play better, and one the other kind was done to make the play shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, when we opened out of town, I think the play was running three hours and five minutes or something. And things had to be cut. The play was too long. It just felt too long. And mm-hmm. um, you know, good things needed to be cut, and, and that, that's hard.
0: But it didn't you have to matter do it.
8: actually that it was playing even at three hours and five minutes. They were they were rapt, they were attentive, but you couldn't go past the union cutoff here in New York. Yeah. So we just couldn't tell the story in that amount of time, even if it was working. So, hmm. yeah. and in but
2: musical theater, the same thing. How do you feel about cutting there?
5: I love cutting. That's almost my favorite thing, in a weird kind of a way. <laughs> yeah. I know it sounds strange, but I I I think I. I my background um, taught me a lot um, in terms of honing yeah. in, you know, when you write thirty seconds worth of copy or, or a sixty second jingle or, you know, things where you're given a time limit. You learn a lot about making every word count and communicating. And um, I, I agree with Aaron that the hardest thing is, is doing the first draft, because you are just at sea, you don't know where you're going. And then finally, you have something on paper, and you start weighing it, and saying, oh, I wrote all that, you know. And, and um, when you start to see it performed, or, or you know, have people read it, you, you begin to see what doesn't work, and it, it becomes very clear. It just tells you what doesn't belong in there, and it's, it's a wonderful thing, I think, to, to cut um, and, and suddenly see something click. Uh, and, and move and work together better than it had been working, and I also think it's, it's uh, very challenging when something isn't working, and you know you have to replace it to figure it out. It's problem-solving. Who, who
2: is the who, who gives the word there? The director uh, for cutting? The producer? Well, who there do are you times dis- I
0: mean, th- wh- wh- one of my favorite times in a rehearsal process is when everybody involved in the show knows as much as you do. So I love it. I, I love that process because when actors start to say, this doesn't work in the first week, you just go, you know, you don't know how to do it. But then after, after they know the show, it's a wonderful process for them to come, what about this? Because then it's, it's, it means that, that that process of everybody working on the same show has happened and you're and everybody is giving their best, and they're and they're now inside of your head, and it's it's, a, it's and an exciting time. And in the, the most important process.
5: thing is the show itself. Precisely. And whether or not it works, and whether or not it communicates, yeah. not a specific song yeah. or a specific, specific scene moment. that you're in love with. The, m- the most important thing is the total. Yeah, yeah. composers
3: are usually heartbroken
6: yeah. when well, they have to. a story to tell you because uh, we're, we're in previews right now. We open uh, May sixth, so we're le- ten or eleven days from that, and we lost a song last week. And he speaks it it was it was like a big eleven o'clock moment for our leading character and a ballad, and the bridge was uh some of my favorite music in the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time it got to that beautiful ballad moment, uh, the audience would start doing this, and then you'd see this, and then look you'd see the <laughs> program and you know, coughing. it was so And uh, it, it was difficult. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think everybody sensed that the moment wasn't working, and I was probably the last one to give in. And yeah. Lynn says, look at those heads, you know, and you see the backs <laughs> of heads. <laughs> look you know. at them! Look at them!
5: They're going out and, to lunch! Uh, <laughs> and
6: uh, we had to lose, lose the piece, and we, we rewrote something and uh, the show is working better, and it's because it's it's at a place in the show where uh, the show really kicks into high gear, and it needs to move forward. And the audience, it's the only time that they were ahead of the ahead of the character on stage. And you um, haven't
3: lost it. You'll save it for we'll a yeah, so club K. act.
1: <laughs>
6: <laughs> <laughs> the best questions
1: one
2: right now, because there are so many that want to be asked. And so, would you like to ask the first question right okay. now?
1: Okay. Um, my name is Matthew Dubois and I'd like to address this to Luke Yankee. Um, I've heard there's a lost scene from The Cherry Orchard, and will you be using it? Wow, this man certainly knows his check off. Uh, In the course of my research, yes, I did find that uh, in a production at the Arena Theatre, I believe about three seasons ago, and it was, uh, I believe he's a Czech, his name is uh, Lucien Pintilier, I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, and he had reinstated a scene that Stanislavski had thrown out at the end of the second act, and it had never been seen anywhere since the original, (laughs) since previews, I guess, at the Moscow Art Theatre back in 1904. (laughs) And he had reinstated this scene in his production, and I was dying to get a hold of it. And so I contacted the arena and um, uh, had some difficulty there, and finally I (laughs) wound up calling different members of the cast all over the country. And one of the actresses who had been involved in that particular scene said, well, I'd be happy to give it to you, but I auctioned off my script for uh, an AIDS benefit, and so I don't have it anymore. Finally, I, and all of a sudden, I became <laughs> obsessed with it, and not even knowing if it would be something I would want to use or not, but I just thought, well, I have to find out what it was, and thought, thought it would give me some wonderful key and some wonderful insight into the play. And finally, late one night, I spoke to uh, one of the actresses down in Pennsylvania. She had just gotten in from a performance. Her uh, daughter was anxiously awaiting to talk to her boyfriend on the phone, and so I'm sitting there typing this into my computer as she's reading it to me. And then, I hung up the phone, it's like, oh my God, I've got The Lost scene, And I read it over and said, no wonder Stanislavski <laughs> threw it out!
7: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> my name is
7: Valerie Dami. I'm addressing my question to Mr. Scardino. Casting is said to be about 50% of a
8: director's job. How important is a casting director to you, and what contributions do they make? A casting director? Yeah. Uh, very, very important, um, because they either uh, have their finger on the pulse of the t- community, who's coming up, who's out there, who's available, who you can afford. Um, um, and a good casting director can make the difference, because y- casting is, uh, who half, th- more who than who half. Who time makes there. the final decision in casting? Uh, it's usually, it's usually sort of a committee. I mean, the, the protocol is that the director, who's going to have to be sort of flogging that particular horse, um, <laughs> <laughs> will get to make the last, uh, choice, the final choice. but. Um, but I think it, it should be a committee decision, the casting director brings certain information. Casting director knows history, actors where they've worked before, and maybe some dirt um, <laughs> Or something good. Uh, the playwright, of course, um, has major say, you know, I mean, anybody that, that Aaron really didn't like, whether I liked them or not, I, I wouldn't go with, because I wanted him to be. I mean, my job is to serve his play, really.
4: How about Thank the you. producer?
3: Producer,
8: absolutely, very involved, yeah.
3: My name is Ian Frost. I'd like to ask the panel, what quality in yourselves have, has brought you to this point in your career? And less generally, has there been any pivotal decision that you now look back upon and think that was something of a watershed?
8: Well, all right, good Thank questions. Goodness. What's brought you to Oh, I can't possibly do the first person. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Or, anyway. But um, um, I'm lucky, because I started as a child. And um, it 's always seemed to be a magical place to me no matter no matter what and so there 's a joy in working that knockwood i haven 't lost it 's a very tough business in fact, it stinks as a business <laughs> but c- on occasion but i 'm um, but lucky to have that and I think um big dis- major decision was directing absolutely by chance. Um, <laughs> I worked with a lot of directors only uh, uh, over thirty years, and only three or four I liked. That,
9: that's almost exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
3: you. My name is John Francis Fox. My question is for Aaron Sorkin. Did Tom Hulse's performance show you anything about his character that you had not envisioned
9: while writing the play? Sure. Um, I, I would say, in fact, that everyone's uh, – all the actors' performances – I would say that every aspect of the production of the play, all of the performances, the design elements, all of Don's direction. Uh, showed me lots of things that I never could have envisioned while putting all this on paper. The script really was a set of instructions, a blueprint for, uh, for an evening in the theatre, and it took all these people, Tommy included, um, <coughs> to, to make it live, to make it fly. Okay, Thank you.
2: Thank you.
5: I'm Letha Haredy, and thank you me. so much for a delightful morning to the entire panel. My question is to Luke Yankee. Since you've done both so successfully, when did you decide to be a director, and when did you know you were a director and not an actor?
1: Actually, uh, not unlike Don, it was kind of a, a wonderful turn of events, having started out in the business as a child. I think I got my equity card at, at fifteen. Um, <coughs> I, uh, it sounds very pretentious, but I was at Ann Baxter's last Christmas party. God bless her. (laughs) And I met Ruth Mitchell, and who said uh, to me – Ruth is a a very uh, strong-willed lady – and she said, well, I hear you're very talented, do you sing? (laughs) And when uh, one is confronted like that, one had better say yes. And so she had just started rehearsals for Grind, Hal Prince's new show, and um, so she arranged for me to come in and sing for her uh, and for Hal a week later. And I knew that it was really more of a courtesy audition, that the show was already cast. And I said, Ruth, if you're ever looking for a production assistant, a coffee boy, whatever, you know. Because there really is no sort of training program for directors anymore. There's really very few um, in the city. The way we have the ASCAP workshop for musicians, or BMI, various programs like that, there really isn't anything like that for directors. So. Um, she called a week after that audition and said, how would you like to work for Hal Prince for the next four months for free? And <laughs> I jumped at the chance, and went from there to uh, assisting and directing my own productions regionally. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Hello, my name is Susan Pingleton, and I'm an actress here in the city. And what I'd like to address to the panel is, which playwrights or directors have had the most influence in your
7: own work? Do you want to start on your right again, Brendan? <laughs> I, uh, I have to speak for myself, having worked, having assisted Michael Bennett for four years in quite a few Broadway productions, I have to confess he was my mentor. Uh, when I was working uh, with him, I didn't know – he did, <laughs> but I didn't know – that I had some kind of a talent to become a choreographer. But I guess I was just learning through observing him. And when the time came um, that I was too old to continue dancing, um, he uh, pushed me into it. And because I have a kind of a nature that somebody just uh, uh, knocks at the door, I open and they say, do you want to come and play? And I go. (laughs) I just jump into the sea, and the same thing happened later on uh, with Bob Fosse. So those two are my mentors
2: that answer it? Yep. Let me ask the panel, why are you working in the theatre? <coughs> why the theatre? Why not television? Why not movies? What do you find in the theatre?
1: A live audience. Uh, there's just – I don't know, there's something about um, breathing in the atmosphere of the theatre to me that is just uh, – gives me a, a reason for living.
0: Okay. George? Uh, I think with the world becoming so fractured, it's one of the places <laughs> where you are f- a part of a community of people who, who have a shared set of beliefs and a shared set of goals, and you work toward achieve them. It's, it's, I think it's one of the few healthy places where you can be a part of a group.
8: Yeah, I, I second that. Also the, the <laughs> communion with the audience that, that takes place can't be, take place anywhere else, really.
9: Uh, the communion with the audience. and. Um, you know, I th- uh, there's, there's a musical coming in next season, uh, which I've heard a lot about, and I was with a group of people and we were hearing about it, and apparently there's a breathtaking scene in the second act where a helicopter uh, lands <laughs> on stage. I don't know how they do this, but apparently a helicopter lands on stage. And I was with Robert Whitehead, one of our producers and a real old legend of the theatre, when we were hearing about this scene, about the helicopter coming down on stage. And Robert says, great. Now, let's see him do it without the helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> really, to me, that's what – you know, what's great about the theater, because you can, and the best way to do it is without the helicopter. <laughs> um,
7: I love instant gratification. And <laughs> <laughs> uh <laughs>
4: <laughs>
6: uh, I, I think I like the working process the best, uh, even more than the and uh, once the show gets up on its feet, uh, we, we've developed this piece over a period of time, and I've loved the collaboration between Graciela and Lynn and myself, and the musicians, and, uh, and our actors. And also, it's about a group of people putting something together at the same time. And I think in other mediums, you don't get that sense of community, and people working every day in the same room uh, over an extended period of time, and that's what I enjoy the most.
5: And, um, I would just sort of second everything that's been said, and, um, and just add that I have worked in television extensively, and I've worked in movies as well. And once you do your work, the thing is done. And you just sort of sit back, and it's done, for better or for worse. And in the theatre, every night you go, something different happens. It's very exciting, and it's very terrifying, and it keeps you on your toes. And um, you know, so in addition to all these other wonderful benefits, there's something very electric about the process of, of watching this thing with its own life that continues to live and grow and change and get better and get worse. And you know, it's exciting.
8: Also, just to to quote Robert Whitehead one more time, I mean, audiences come out of the theatre changed, because it's immediate, because you feel it, because it happens there. You come out different than when you come in. It rarely happens on film, certainly never happens on television. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, and Robert Whitehead said, and I've quoted this before, but uh, it's just so important to me. He said that he still believes what he's believed for the f- past 40 years of producing, and that is that theatre is the hope of the world. Theatre can make a difference in people's lives.
2: Yeah. I, I think that uh, that's an, an, a very important thing that's been said here, because we hear so much about the theatre is dead, and nobody goes to the theatre, and nobody works, and nobody writes in for the theatre anymore. It's very alive. And it's alive in, in New York, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway offers such marvelous opportunities for people like the talent that we've had here to get together and to to be part of the scene. And that which they're doing then goes out, goes out across the country, and uh, from across the country, from the regional theaters, come the very best into Broadway. And that enriches the Broadway scene. So working in the theater really has to be in New York City. I'm Isabel Stevenson, I'm President of the American Theatre Wing, and these seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The seminars are geared to give you an insight into what it is to work in the theatre from the performer's viewpoint, from today's seminar on the playwright and the director, which has been so fruitful, and, and these, this talent has been so extraordinary. And another program will be the production, and we will have the producers, the people that bring it all together, the nitty gritty aspects of what it is to work in the theater. Thank you very much for coming, and I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have.
7: That was great fun. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)